0: This how it feels. We are electric eels, going round like a wonder wheel. Round,
1: round, round. Welcome to Talkscript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of Talkscript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if Talkscript is your type of podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Talk Script Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, Nick Neesey. Hoi hoi. Neil Roberts. It's an honor just
1: to be nominated.
0: And Paul Shannon. Howdy y'all. All right.
2: Paul, I thought it was funny that you're the only one not in the Midwest and you said howdy. That is kind of it's
3: weird. a It's a Western thing. <laughs> Texans, certainly. Isn't it yeah.
1: supposed to be the Midwestern one? It's a mixture Ope. of <laughs> Ope, didn't see you there. It's a mixture of o oh and oops.
0: I think Ope. it's a, yeah oops.
3: Yeah. Well, to be fair, you're. I don't know what you've been nominated for
1: either, Neil. So mm,
0: yeah. <laughs> we aren't quite sure either. So, but he has been nominated.
1: Well, if I'm not nominated, I'm just happy to be here.
0: <laughs> That's right. So, you, so you don't get fined, right? Yep. Just,
1: yeah. I'm just here so I don't get fined.
0: Right. The nullish coalescing operator or the Elvis operator.
1: I I think I have the impression that a lot of people don't even know uh, about the dangers of truthiness and falsiness in JavaScript. Like when I, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, when I was doing a lot of JavaScript training to people that were learning JavaScript for the first time, we had like three slides that were like, warning, 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 truthy and falsy in JavaScript are crazy. And, And I feel like this is acknowledging that. I have a feeling some people are like, Creating bugs because of these ideas, and they don't even realize that that's what they're doing. So, I think, you know, that we should say that the the premise of all this is that things like empty strings evaluate to false in JavaScript inside of an if block. Mm-hmm. Uh, zero uh, evaluates to false in an if block, even though it's technically like, in you an know, if, if someone in an if condition, a number in an, if condition. in an if condition. Yeah, yeah. And then there's some things that evaluate to true even if you think they should be false right like we were talking about an instance of boolean that contains a value of false is considered to be true
0: yeah true to so you. that's yeah. yeah
1: yeah so that's where like there'd be a people would do a shorthand ternary using the or operator and that's where you might think that an empty string would resolve to true but it won't it'll it'll instead return the value on the other side of the or
0: yeah if you did empty string or like one it would evaluate to one
1: yeah so that's that's kind of the premise of these two operators where Instead of or, you would use uh, double question mark, and then that would instead of considering truthy values or falsy values as the conditional, it, it basically just says, is it like a real undefined object, like null or undefined, rather than just rather than strings or 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 the the number zero and stuff like that. So I think it's cool. I think it's cool that we have that, and that'll make it so that people that do this kind of programming won't introduce a bug by complete accident
0: yeah the other thing is the optional chaining i think is what it's called Mm -hmm. that one to me is real interesting because that that is something that we do quite often where you've got a deep structure and you're checking all right is this actually an object all right if it's an object then get this property off of it if that property is an object get this property off of it and now you can just do object question mark dot and then the property question mark dot and you can do that as many times and if any of those property lookups fail then it just I think it returns null Mm -hmm. so that one will be really nice to have
3: Yep. like couldn't a proxy do that if you just you know created a factory that wrapped your thing (laughs) in a proxy sure your proxy could like you know return a proxy that will return null or whatever like I don't know
1: or we can make it part of the language.
2: <laughs> could do that. Or we could just use Dojo based lang's get object. Yep. Well, yeah, I, I mean, Dojo's done this. Let's through. just
3: make everything part of the language. Dojo's then. already done that. Right? Solved. <laughs> now, everybody will be great at JavaScript then,
0: I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. All right. Shadowing.
1: I think any, anything, that yeah. can spot, <laughs> uh, anything that can spot programming errors up front, uh, I think should be uh, moved as close to the front as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that's what i think these do yeah i'm excited
2: for both of them i just i don't feel like i hit them very like these problems very often but when i do i'm always like oh i wish this was in the language
1: Mm -hmm. i use the or a lot yeah Yeah. like yeah yeah having having a better behaved version sounds uh really nice yeah
2: i wonder if this will make uh our coworkers more accepting of nested ternaries when it's just nested knowledge coalescing yeah uh (laughs) that might make it a little bit
3: cleaner uh, yeah that's maybe. the one thing that
2: always comes back is stop doing nested ternaries mm-hmm. that's so funny
3: i don't complain about those but they do make my eyes cross yeah. <laughs> it's definitely you start seeing question marks and dots yeah. and everything all over the place and and you're like well i hope this works so, so yeah. this TypeScript, it at
1: least you know it works well it's better than foo and food bar and food bar to and food you know
3: yeah it, it, is, it I, both I just, bad. I'm always worried about adding more and more syntax to to solve these these small issues. Like,
1: but it's not a small issue. It's it's a potentially a catastrophic bug, right? Like, I think that it's for JavaScript. For JavaScript, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, for, I mean, other other languages have this though. I mean, other languages have this specific operator.
3: They also have other languages have nils. And things like that to solve the problem as well that's just like that's just like as, a, as confusing
0: but a nil <laughs> well, that is is yeah but it's a null Null-ish. that doesn't fail like yeah. it oh man you're off but the it doesn't podcast. fail that's okay yeah. <laughs> i mean
1: this, this compromises it's like, it's like in we're every paying direction. for
0: this
3: null thing for you know by adding more and more symbols that we have to remember
0: uh, i i get what you're saying paul thank you brian <laughs> i do get what you're saying i mean for me the the lookup the, the optional chaining I think is something that, especially when you don't have the control over the back end and somebody sends you some deeply nested object, that's something that, that I do quite often. Right. Mm-hmm. And especially like if you're writing in typescript, you're not going to have as, as big of an issue with this because you don't necessarily have to guard against an object coming in with, without a property. But when you're, when you're dealing with the end that, could send something with or without a property that is an object that you have to go into the optional chaining is, is nice to have the null coalescing. I could, my opinion is it could go either way, but I do like that. I do like the, <laughs> the optional chaining
2: from a, from a typescript perspective. Do you think that like, if, if it is something that is known, like this object is known to have these properties and they're not optional. So they will be there. But if I try and reference them with, the the optional chaining would it immediately cast them to be whatever the the value is or undefined
3: well typescript should already limit it right like it should know that it's not not a
1: it'll be it'll mm. be runtime it would leave it as the the or undefined
0: yeah yeah so that's interesting it is so our first topic today is going to be classical versus functional programming
1: the eternal debate
0: the eternal... Deb- well, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Is it? It has been.
0: Uh, but I mean, for a long time, the, the debate was not really functional versus classical. It was OOP versus what? Well, okay.
3: So, you know, to to be fair, like classical inheritance was added in 2015. You know, classical like language structures have been added to JavaScript sure, in sure, 2015. Sure, sure.
0: Oh, well, I'm thinking outside of JavaScript. I'm thinking like C, C++. Well, I mean, I'm even thinking with
1: it within JavaScript. I mean, Dojo's had a uh, an emulation of classical inheritance for a number of years. Yeah, and Sounds that was like always a big zero three. That was a debate as well. Yeah, zero two. Yeah,
3: yeah. So the the interesting thing about Dojo's implementation and ES six or 2015, whatever you want to call its implementation, all of the implementations still are are just syntactic sugar. Like they essentially have the functional factories at the base of those, those implementations. Right. And they, while they only allow for single inheritance due to the prototype chain, you can still add properties, you know, using defined property. You can still add mix ins on top of it. You can still redo everything with decorators. Mm-hmm. You can, you can still treat it as, as this, you know, functional thing, even though you have like a classical syntax around it. And so like in other languages, you know, you have C++ and C, they have two very clear and separate language structures, you know, C having a functional and structs clearly defining their, their, you know, property bag versus their functional and and C++ kind of Mm -hmm. combining those two things together. JavaScript has always been essentially a functional and prototypical language so it's it's kind of i mean we too have those two classes we have javascript which is you know trying to add syntactic sugar to make things easier for developers and just like the the two new features you guys were talking about adds to the overall complexity of the language whereas underlying it you're still going to have the principles of javascript you're still going to have a functional and prototypical language and I think a lot of the, the frameworks that have been experimenting around with classical versus functional are are starting to see those differences in there, and st- especially ones that are TypeScript first. So TypeScript, to be fair, doesn't have great support for doing object defines, extending you know classic and functional structures, uh, decorators on the fly are-
0: on the fly modifications. Yeah,
3: on the fly modifications. Even not really on the fly modifications. You have to impl- uh, explicitly define your interfaces if right, you're going right, to make right. these changes. You know, and the the same thing goes for you know decorators. Decorators are crazy unsafe because you, if you can make any modification, now you try to make like stable, known modifications. But when a decorator comes in, they can do anything. Uh-huh. At least TypeScript decorators, the new decorator proposal should be different.
0: <laughs> we'll
3: see. Proxies are the same way. You know, all of these things are really hard to nail down structure-wise in, in their interfaces. Like, how do you define a proxy that that is just a basic fetch proxy? You know, you can get, it just gets you data back from wherever. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so I think a lot of the frameworks are starting to, to look at functional versus classical. I know Vue had a, a pull request for classical that was just recently kind of rejected and i know dojo is also looking at having like a functional approach to rendering widgets and defining them
2: so this is kind of the trend that we're seeing right like a great example of this would be like react right react was originally they originally had a weird create class syntax mm-hmm. uh because they weren't using es2015 and then they switched to es2015 classes and and then they introduced functional components. Uh, but if you still wanted state, you had to kind of do the classical route because that was the way to to bring in the, the required state. But now with with the new APIs, right, I think like hooks and such, you can get stateful components in React without having to go the classical route. So it, everything is kind of moving that way. And, and like you said, Vue also had that get rejected. Uh, and then it's something that we're looking in, at with Dojo as well.
3: Yeah, uh, with Dojo, I, I think I think what's, what Dojo has found is that we create a, essentially a, a basic class for our widget renderers and we use an extension. But in addition to extending off of like our base widget structure for, the, for Dojo widgets, we also have to include things for theming or internationalization or other like top level functionality that we want to essentially mix in. And what we do is we create basically factory functions that wrap and wrap and wrap or extend the, the underlying base widget. But it makes, it, it makes us want to have mix-ins and treat things as functional more than really classical. And so another thing that we end up hitting is we, we have all of this, these extension points that we want to link back to the framework. And in, in doing that right now, we're using decorators. So if you wanted to create a, a basic pattern, like our watch pattern. So you can put a watch pattern on a variable. And what it does is it recreates that in the class as a a private property. And then it uses getters and setters to invalidate the widget when that variable changes. So we're using a lot of decorators to kind of do some magic to tie in this classical structure with essentially what a mix-in is. And functional programming kind of already defines rather than having the ability to do wrapping functions and like clearly defining these behaviors in these other functions or in these other like groups of behavior we're now tying them in with these pseudo mixins and so that's that's kind of led dojo to look at like hey you know maybe classical isn't the best approach at least right now with typescript where it's very hard to get higher level order functions decorators and things like that into our interfaces we're looking more as defining middlewares that create data or create patterns that could be reusable throughout and then shared across different renderers. so the render is just you know this function that's the that creates an end result for virtual the virtual dom for diffing Mm-hmm. but everything goes up to it. Like the middleware is what structures your data in a way that you can render it or tells your renderer that it needs to reset or, you know, invalidate or or what have you. So these things together create patterns and building blocks that you can kind of piece together rather than having a class, which all of its methods have to be linked back to the framework to be useful anyway. Like all, all of our widget classes either deal with that data that the middleware does or it it involves rendering. So anyway, the the usefulness of classes as a structure that you can extend is kind of lessened by needing to tie it back into a framework. And that's why the having a look at classical versus functional is is kind of a topic we wanted to talk about today and and kind of come back into.
2: So overall, like from a user perspective, like obviously the classes are much more confusing or, or can be because you know you you have to understand how they're they're implemented in javascript and then there's there's like a lot of boilerplate to them as well that's one thing that you know can be kind of annoying because if you if you have to do a lot of things like like you were saying mixing in a lot of things like you can add a lot of mixins and that takes a lot of a lot of code and I'm really lazy so I don't want to
0: to do that all <laughs> the too. time yeah to be fair though like if you get into a into a react application and you've got reducer after reducer after reducer i mean you've got complexity there too so i mean you're really sure. just shifting the complexity around
3: yeah but you have clear actions you're taking with factory functions and transformations so the the problem with classical is you have to tie it back into your framework
2: Mm-hmm. but okay. i guess from a like a co- code organization standpoint does this make things simpler or not because at least with classes like it's you know, there's a place you can put things, you can put things on the class itself. And then, you know, with like TypeScript and stuff, you can mark them as private or protected and further protect them there. But with this, like, would you, you know, you might just have more of your callbacks as more inline anonymous functions, for example. And like, does that make things harder to, to test or to mock out uh, or uh, like to stub out? Does it simplify testing? It simplifies writing, but does it simplify
1: like testing? From what I understand, it's all done. It's all done through like higher order programming. So you're working with a lot of closures.
3: No, you definitely have a lot of closures. And so when these things are designed, they have to be, you have to keep in mind like open close principle, which is Mm -hmm. you want to be able to prevent modification, but allow extension. And so... Things like testing, as long as there's a structure behind that that the factory function produces, which is then handed off to the framework or used by the framework, testing should be easy.
0: Real quick, I know Nick doesn't know what uh, the open closed principle, so would you explain it for him? <laughs> Thank you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nick, I'm sorry. I, uh, <laughs> so open closed principle is part of solid, and it, it basically says that entities or things like classes typically, but also like your structures, like your objects and and things like that. If they're going to be used in your, in your application, they should be open for extension. So you should be able to use them to extend, but they should be closed for modification. So you want to maintain the behavior of it, but allow it to be extended is probably the best, like short explanation of it.
1: So the idea there would be like that you're adding, extra arguments to the functions that interact with the closures you're creating and that affects the function that's produced to where so so the idea that that's open in terms of you you're able to modify that behavior but it's closed in the sense that once you do that that it's you can't tinker with it beyond what they provided for you
3: yeah it allows for reuse when it's closed essentially because it's a known thing at that point
2: so like would this be like if you want I'm thinking in the in terms of like widgets now or or components like you you wouldn't go in and like extend a react uh component, right? You wouldn't do that and then modify its render method. You would instead use it but wrap it with something else potentially. Like is that is that kind of what you're getting at? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, so with um with closures and functional programming, you can kind of better define those extension points. Okay. And looking back at you know at JavaScript, we don't have our private modifiers yet. We don't have any of these privates yet that allow us to make those things closed off. And even if we did, the framework needs to have access points into a class in order to do things like render. So it's very hard to fully close off a class using, you know, classical architecture. So you can always change a render and things like that through any means. Like I, I know, again with classes, we typically say, "Oh, you know, we're just going to extend it." But in JavaScript land, you can fully change it. Like you can change the prototype, you can change any of these things. So it becomes a, you know, it. Maybe I'm maybe I'm kind of dancing a line, <laughs> dancing a line here, but, <laughs> you know, the the fact that we can we can fully close off a a renderer so it can be reused and extended within another render or another factory function, but you know, and make sure it's closed, but allow it to be extended and reused is something that seems valuable to me.
2: I feel like it makes things a little bit harder unless you're doing it correctly, uh, which I totally do by the way I'm explaining this, (laughs) Uh, but like, like with a class, right? Like you you said, it's just like, you can modify the prototype and, and change things and tinker with it in order to serve the purpose of, like getting in and testing the appropriate things. But when you're wrapping things in closures, like it makes that considerably harder to do. So I'm wondering, does that get harder or or easier? Or am I just, is it just different trade-offs?
3: I think it's different trade-offs. What a functional enclosure-based approach allows you to do is very clearly define where the limits are, like what's available and then what your output happens to be. If you were to write a transformer there wouldn't be much value in having it as a class typically. And if, if you wanted to extend a transformer class to like transform one object to another, you could create methods in there that you could extend, but then you're trying to extend all these other things. But if you think about a transformer as just simply something that has a bunch of functions that are, you know, higher order functions that go together to transform one object to another, it makes more sense to have this transformer as a pipeline You know, as a functional pipeline. Mm
0: -hmm. Something with more than meets the eye.
3: (laughs) Yeah, something (laughs) more than meets the eye. All
0: right. But
3: yeah, I mean, it it makes sense to define these things as pipelines. And essentially, that's what, you know, renderers are. They're a render pipeline where you take data and you transform it to a virtual DOM ish type node. And, you know, maybe there's some metadata there that's produced as part of your render factory. But, That's essentially absorbed by the framework and used as your final transformation step.
1: I'd say as far as things go, you can combine a lot of the two ideas by having like an options object uh, that's passed to one of these render functions, right? Where if you really need to have some sort of configurable, overridable uh, system of properties and callbacks, like you can do that through classes uh, and then create instances of those and pass it in through options. Like, Yeah, that's what widgets define as properties, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't so it doesn't it doesn't like preclude the use of the patterns that you would associate with object oriented programming. It like like Paul was saying, the compromise is that it, once you've closed it off, you've closed it off. That's kind of the bigger compromise that you're making. I don't I don't think you you lose the benefits of an object oriented or, or classical pattern.
3: Yeah, in, the, in in the case of like middleware, when you're defining what middleware go into your render, you definitely have to be careful to allow for some amount of openness to switch those out or to redefine them, especially for testing purposes. For the most part, you probably don't need to worry about it for many other reasons, since most people are using things like Dojo and View for application development, not mm-hmm. widget development. Right. But you know, there there is a ticket open for Dojo right now that. You know, we're discussing these things. We're like, OK, well, what if you have like a camera that is a middleware that imperatively accesses your DOM and you want to supply a default WebRTC implementation of it, but then you want to keep it open so somebody can replace the middleware later, uh, the camera middleware later and come back with like a Cordova implementation that accesses like, you know, hardware. It's like, how do you do that? And, and you know, what kind of openness do you need in order to make that, that happen. And so when you're doing functional programming versus classical, you're more on the hook for this, the openness of your, of your implementation.
0: So I remember when TypeScript first came out, obviously it wasn't very well developed, but as it's gone, functional programming was, didn't ever seem to be top on its list. Has that changed? (laughs) <laughs> I think Angular was the reason for that, right? Well, no. Okay. <laughs> right, Brian? <says> yes. <laughs> no. I, oh, man. No, I think... <laughs> see, you're flipping it on its head right now. I think that Angular made some of the decisions that it made because of the the nature of TypeScript at the time.
3: I don't think so. I think Angular became popular for a lot of reasons, but one of them was it. it was a comfortable transition from java
0: i mean that that's probably true but i mean like for instance the decorator syntax and such it doesn't really work functionally in typescript you have to use classes and so i think that because of that limitation they they went to classes but even still like would you say that that typescript support for because we can talk about angular in a minute but would you say TypeScript support for functional paradigms has gotten better? Yeah, yeah, it's gotten considerably
3: better recently, in fact.
1: Yeah, I would say even an older one, like, but still would have come up after Angular, is something like the intersection operator, where you have right. an input and you're adding properties and methods to it, right? So you say, like, I'm going to take in this function that accepts this object, and I'm going to return that object plus...
0: It it takes two two objects and yeah smashes them together. Yes, so to
1: yes, yeah, so you yeah, so you have the, it's like the, a smush function,
0: but not a smush. smush. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, so you have a function that has a return type, and then it, it accepts that function and then modifies the return type. Yeah. so that it has uh, the normal return type uh, with an intersection with uh, additional uh, properties and methods added to it. Yep. Uh, so even that even that's relatively recent, and that, that goes a long way to this pattern.
3: Yeah, to be fair, uh, structured classical inheritance with single inheritance is is kind of low-hanging fruit. Like, yeah. it's well-defined, it, yeah. and and it's really easy versus, like, unions, intersections, and yeah. generics.
0: With, and, with generics, yeah, exactly.
1: And that's really what we're talking about, right? Like, the, you know, with the intersection operator, we're basically yeah. doing classical inheritance where we're extending something and adding new properties to it. Yeah, uh, it's just sure. a different way of looking at it.
0: Yeah, and then you've got like uh the pick and mm-hmm. uh, what are um, omit is the is the new what did they just add that in three five? They did, although technically it was do possible it, before that. Yeah, then. it was it was possible <laughs> before that, but they just added it, so it's nice yeah. syntactic sugar. Yeah.
1: We've been extracting extracting the return type is is pretty recent as well.
0: Yeah. So yeah, yeah, they're definitely. I mean from they're, making this, the yeah, infer- they're making this reference way, way stuff, better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
3: Yeah, they started with classical, and it, it in the last like several years, the last several major versions, they've yeah. spent making it appropriate for functional, and even three five adds better generic support for higher level, higher order functional types.
0: Yeah,
1: definitely. And when we have variadic types, then no one's going to use classical inheritance ever again.
3: <laughs> Do you think so? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> What's well, a joke? <laughs> I think once we have a uh, good. Support for like object defines and things like that. Maybe it'll go more towards that because the variadic types are super important. But there's also the idea of of extending a bag of properties and functions. I I think those are the last two hills that TypeScript needs to climb. Mountains probably. <laughs> probably. Space elevators. I don't know.
0: <laughs> Get Elon Musk
3: on it. <laughs> and, no thanks. No. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I think we have covered classical versus functional fairly well. Um, I think we should go on to our second topic, which is kind of a community announcement as well, but it has m- wider implications than just the TypeScript community. So, I mean, we wanted to talk a little bit about it. So, uh,
2: this kind of came up because, you
0: know, I was checking Twitter, as you do, and
2: really appreciated Tierney Siren's tweetstorm of a JSConf EU talk. That was really good, and it was from CJ Silviero, I want to, SiegeBot on Twitter, and she's the former CTO of NPM Inc., and uh, was was talking about package managers in in general, kind of, but had a, a big announcement. Like, th- There's a lot of drama around that that I'm not sure we want to get into but basically there's drama we can, around
0: we can put the the talk into the show notes sure yeah i thought it was a really neat talk um kind of giving some of the history and as she was going through her talk and and like saying some people and it's like wow i remember that guy and i remember that 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 lady and i remember them and um mm-hmm. i mean the history is like from 2007 up to now so it was, yeah. it was a really interesting talk um, and I really appreciated the the historical aspect of it. So you know, I, I would encourage everybody to, li- to to take a listen to the to the talk. And thanks, CJ, yeah. for for doing that.
2: And as, aside from the the potential drama aspects yeah, sure. that we could take yeah, yeah, from yeah. this, there's like what she's saying is true, and there's a lot of she's highlighting a lot of problems that we're we are about to face, or are facing, or could face. And like I wasn't. Going through the talk, I really you got to stick into the end for sure because yeah, like, for sure she is going over a lot of problems and it's like if that's it, then you know that's that's a good talk and it's highlighting things. But the talk ended spectacularly
0: with action. yeah, because there was like, a point yeah, there was a point where I'm like, if she ends here, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> like she could just throw up her hands and be like, you know, now it's up to you guys to do it, and I'm I'm thinking. There's going to be somebody in the audience that's just going to go and repeat the same mistakes that she's doing, right? Yeah. But instead, her I mean, her talk really re- led into what you were talking about. It, it ended on a very high note. If you're watching the talk and you're kind of like, this is a little depressing, stick with it because at the end, it's like, i am I'm super stoked about it.
2: Yeah, so we should tell them what it, what it actually yeah, is. Yeah, what came and out of it, guys? I'm on yeah. the edge
0: of my seat. Hey, listen, you're on the edge of your seat. That's exactly what we want. So uh, <laughs> what she ended up announcing was a thing called Entropic. And what it is going to be is it's going to be a federated package manager for Node. And so it's it's one of the one of the big issues that she pointed out in her talk is that in the Node community, we have this centralized repository that is controlled by a corporation. And whatever you think about that corporation doesn't really matter because that's a problem. And it's a problem that that the Linux community and a lot of the open source languages out there have kind of combated against over the years with a design called the, uh, a design for like package repositories, source code repositories and, and such um, with federation where instead of putting the sole ownership of something into one entity's hand, you give it to several different entities. And so to me, I think this is really neat. I'm really excited for it. Not because I think that, that NPM is necessarily a bad actor. I don't, you know, whatever you think about NPM is, it doesn't really matter because I I think that the centralized repository is, is the issue and not the, the control that's that. Well, to a certain degree, the control of the centralized repository is a potential issue. It's, it's one of those slippery slopes where, um, and she brought this up, you know, what if NPM gets sold off to to Microsoft? To, <laughs> well, I wasn't thinking Microsoft. I was trying to think of the, who was the company that, that went after. Oracle. Well, not Oracle. They bought the license, but they, they, went, they went after all those companies that had the Linux kernel. Oh, Yeah. And I don't remember, I mean, it's, you know, if it's sold off to them, then they own the repository and they can start charging just for the heck of it. Mm -hmm. And then we're, we're screwed.
2: And it is, it is a downside because NPM, it ships with node. So it has this special place that no other package manager can.
3: Okay. So to be fair, like we're not completely screwed. Like, github is is has released support now for npm right like they support npm as a package manager or 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 whatever you want to call it correct Um, there's other software like maven nexus and artifactory which are java based and i know that's not our favorite but (laughs) they also support you know npm repositories you know you can you know have local versions of those and as far as back as I can remember, npm has always allowed replication of their Couch database, or whatever it is nowadays. Like it used to be, you could replicate the whole database and have a local npm, which was a pain in the butt back then, as I'm sure it is now. But it's still all open and available, right? Anyway, I'm, I'm not. I didn't see the talk, so I mean, if, the, if oh, these no, topics came you're up fine. in the talk, like let me know.
2: It's the same problem though with like GitHub because GitHub is. You know, it's Microsoft now, but it's it's still a centralized repository, and they can be doing good. And I don't think the npm is doing bad or anything. Right, 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 right. Like, it's the what happens when they're not benevolent anymore?
1: That's not even what what if what if they run out of money and they have to or that. I mean, it's not there. There's some practical things that could that could drive change. That's just, I mean, if you if you're a company and you run out of money and someone else can buy you, like that's kind of hard. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of hard to, to say in. now. Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. I understand yeah, I mean, that. At the same time, I think the, the business value of NPM is having all of the repositories. <laughs> so if you were to start charging for those, you could probably make money for maybe a little bit until everybody switched out. I don't know. Maybe I'm naive. Uh,
1: I mean, that's the, the Toys R Us model. Like, I mean, there there is plenty of the Toys R Us model. What's, what's Toys R Us? You, Neil just you, says, you buy- just like
3: everybody knows, it's a Toys R Us model. Well, you know, <laughs> I I mean, know what Toys, Us, is.
1: Toys R Us is all gone now, right? So it's not a stretch to kind of get a gist for what it is. But, uh, I mean, basically buying a company, uh, extracting as much as you can from it, loading it up with debt, and then shutting it down. Like it, oh, it, yeah. I don't know. It's, there's some unfortunate things related to uh, venture capital and private equity. That people should be aware of in any in any project, um, never mind one that people depend on as much as NPM.
2: Right. and it is the biggest package manager in the world. So
3: mm-hmm.
1: right. are they past Maven Central now?
0: Oh, yeah. The other thing is is that that this really begins to to put the power, or I don't want to say power, but it really fight the power, yeah, well yeah, <laughs> let's don't go want to sound too rage. I don't want to sound too rage against the machine thing, But but I mean, like, it really begins to to get us back to the idea that our ip like dojo right it lives on npm servers right people get it through npm they can get it through other ways but the easiest way is npm mm-hmm. and like that's really like the only way to get dojo that's that you know that's the easiest with a federated system, we could host our own NPM server. Now, we could still do that, but the barrier to entry on on NPM with a federated server is a little more difficult. What's, what's interesting about a federated setup, and I mentioned the Linux community, they've been doing this for years, where, like Debian and Ubuntu, they mirror their, their package repositories all over the world. And so they've got, they've got all these mirrors everywhere, if your data pipeline to the main repository goes down, you just switch over to a different one and, and you're good to go, which is interesting. Yeah. Cause that's kind of how, that's kind of what Amazon has done with their, with their data services. And, but it, you know, it spreads the load across, but then it also gives the community access to what, what CJ called um, their commons, right? the, it gives the, the commons back to the community rather than invested in um, a single entity.
2: And it's also more open because it will be fully open source and not potentially you know, having to answer to shareholders. Yeah. So
3: the, the flip side of the coin, of course, when you create federated package managers, and, and Linux has, has had a lot of the same problems with this, is security. You know, mm. when you, mm-hmm. when you have like vulnerability scanners and things like that, that NPM is starting to implement and Maven has and things like that, you you don't have any one way of understanding where vulnerabilities happen to be. And uh, Linux has the same problem. You don't want to add untrusted sources to your, your, yeah, your yeah. repository list. And it's, there's definitely value in having a federated system mm-hmm. or a distributed system. Sure. But you have to also wonder about how do you maintain the integrity of that system?
0: Yeah. They're, they're definitely going to have some, some issues. I, I completely agree with you that, that there are going to be some security issues you are going to have uh, with a federated system. I mean, we've we've had already had security issues with, with NPM, right? Left pad got deleted. <laughs> we had the one where somebody... Put something in where people's credentials were getting horked out of the, you know, off to some place and right. Wherever. They
3: were stealing uh, Bitcoin wallet credentials. Well,
0: no, but there was one where they were stealing actual credentials for npm. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, I remember that in the post-install yes install stuff. Right? Uh, yeah, I, I think it was. It was yes, Lent. Somebody, somebody got a hold of and and put in some some code to do that. With a federated system, you have less chance. uh, You can shut down a repository real quick and then just redirect everybody to the uninfected ones.
3: That's true. Yeah, the other side is, again, you have to wonder how decisions will propagate throughout the chain. Oh, for sure. How how consistent is the system? Like if NPM deletes left pad and you're like, well, forget that. I want left pad on my system. Yeah. Then you reduce the portability of your your oh, for sure. Yeah, package.
0: I get what you're saying. There's going to be things that they need to figure out. Um, you know what? What I think I'm excited about is is competition.
3: <laughs> yes,
0: between npm and, and, and Tropic. One of the first things that Nick pointed out to me was instead of using tarballs, they're going to use flat files. And I'm still not quite sure what what that completely means. But what it points out to me is that. They're looking at things that are sort of warts about NPM and looking to actually fix them um, rather than, well, we're stuck with this. To me, I think that's good. You know, when when Yarn came out, it really pushed NPM to to take a look at what their, you know, some of the tool chains surrounding NPM and some of the things that NPM could do. Um, the pa- package lock really came out of having an alternate in Yarn. And I think that Entropic is going to push NPM. Even if, you know, I really hope Entropic does something good, right? And and is is around for a long time. But even if it's not, if it pushes NPM to be a better tool for us to use, then that's a win for everyone, right? And so yeah. you know, I see I see a new tool on the on the block like this that is taking a look at Warts and what don't we like about this and how can we fix these things that we've just had to deal with for a long time and bring, bring solutions to the table that either NPM can adopt or we can either, or, you know, we can just eventually abandon NPM if they refuse to, to innovate and go to this new system. I think it's a win for everybody.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think it's addressing some of the things that like, like for example, and I think uh, CJ mentions in her talk, uh, Ryan Dahl's talk from the previous year where he announced Deno, the new JavaScript runtime that's TypeScript first and and whatnot. But I'm I'm wondering, and I was trying to find if like this would better work with that uh, because that has a whole different model of, you know, not installing packages and, and going, going that route. But yeah, I think that the overall it will, like if if anything, if it, I'm hoping that it will spur competition just like Yarn did to make, make the, the environment and the platform better for everyone.
0: Yeah. I was just really encouraged by CJ's talk. And, And again, thank you CJ for doing this talk. I don't know her, but, you know, just after listening to her talk and, and how she took this situation that, that really kind of sucked and used it to further co- the community, I was super encouraged by that. Um, I'm really stoked about this project and, you know, I, I hope the best for
1: them.
2: Yeah. I, I think that with this and with GitHub's package repository, yeah, like there's competition where there needs to be competition and... That's that's a good thing. Like the yeah. only people that are going to benefit from that are, are the users. I mean, yeah. not just the only people, but the users are going to benefit from that. Agreed. Uh, which includes us, so I'm excited.
0: Yeah, and it includes our our listeners. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hi, mom. Um. <laughs>
2: So you should check out Entropic. It's at, Yeah, definitely. There's really not a page like a, a website. You can go to entropic.dev and it'll just tell you to go to the GitHub page. So,
0: yep. Well, uh, you got go to go hold on, you got to go to www.entropic.dev. If you just if you leave yeah. off the the triple W, it gives you a I don't know, they might fix it, but <laughs> they've might have fixed it since the, you know, the day after the talk, but nope. Nope. Okay. Yeah, it gives you a like a weird error. So www.entropic.dev. Dev. We'll put it in the show notes. You know, the the real uh, work is on their GitHub page. Like Nick said, they've got a link there on their to their GitHub page where all the issues and such.
3: Yeah. If you don't put www, I mean, the server just doesn't know you're coming from the World Wide Web.
0: Uh, well, you might be coming from Gopher.
3: <laughs> oh yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And no one's gonna know what that is. All right. Some some real time follow up,
2: uh, real quick. Paul, you posted uh, a link to Maven Central. And it looks like they have 3.9 million jars. Is that like is a jar a a package?
3: Uh, a jar is a, a release, so it's it's not quite tightly as linked to a package as a as okay. NPM uh, defines packages. And I this was the best information that I could find. Uh, it says it has something like 14.5 million indexed artifacts, so not just jars, but any zip file that's been indexed over the last. Ten plus years.
2: Ah, so npm might not be the biggest package repository in the world,
0: but it sure is. Up Nick there. is now if walking it, backwards.
3: It's the biggest to us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's the biggest JavaScript package repository named npm. <laughs> For
2: sure. <laughs> I don't like giving giving Java breath on this show.
3: <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> You know, I'm actually a little mad at Java that they just haven't solved all the problems for us yet. Like, they came before all of this NPM stuff, and where's all my solutions, right?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, we had applets. (laughs) That that was not a solution. (laughs) It wasn't? Oh, weird. No. That's right. That's right. All right. I think that's it for today. Uh, Guys, thanks
1: for... Shooting the breeze
0: and yep. adding our knowledge. And until next time, stay type safe.
1: Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript.
0: We got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba. We got a good.